All right, turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. And you're going to see today that we're in a kind of a heavy passage of Scripture. One of the reasons that I believe strongly in expository preaching is that it doesn't allow you to leapfrog over tough passages. You have to hit them head on. And we find ourselves at such a passage today. And there's going to be three movements in this passage that we're going to see. We're going to see the judgment of God. I understand the judgment of God is not a popular topic. People don't like to talk about the judgment of God. But it's in the Bible, and it's true. And by the way, before we even read the Scriptures today, let me remind you, I didn't write this book. <laughs> okay? I, this is God's Word, and I simply am called to proclaim it as I believe it is to be proclaimed. But I didn't write this. It's not my idea. This is His idea. And the Bible says that if we yield to the truth, it will set us free. And sometimes it's hard to yield to the truth because the, the truth will go countercultural. The truth will go against the things that we want to do or the, or the ways of our day and age. Uh, but it's God's Word and it's the truth. And if we believe it and receive it and live it, it will set us free. We're going to see the judgment of God, but we're also going to see the mercy of God today. Aren't you glad that God is merciful, gracious? That's amazing to me. And then we're going to see it all come together at the gospel of Jesus. So let's stand again, please. I know you just sat down, but in respect for God's word, I'm reading 2 Peter 2, 4 through 10. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. That's good news, folks. Yeah, amen. Say that. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. You may be seated. Yeah, so you get a sense that it's a pretty heavy passage. All right, now, whenever you, you study God's Word, it is important to look for certain things, and I call this my house diagram, and it's a way to have a balanced Christian life. It's, it's a foundation is a correct understanding of the nature of God, who God is. So today, you're going to learn some very important things about the nature of God, that He is a God of holiness, therefore He brings judgment. He's also a God of love, and He brings grace and mercy. Where that is best seen is at the cross of Jesus. And so the door into the house is the person and the work of Jesus Christ, His redemptive work at the cross. He shed His blood that we might be forgiven of our sin and reconciled to God. When you enter that door, you are then a Christian. You're born again. And then the most important thing is to understand your identity in Christ, learning who you are in Christ. And then before you get to the top of the house or obedience to God, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that your behavior is driven by the power of God. And so that is, I believe, a balanced Christian life, one that is 
rooted in an understanding of the nature of God, you're saved through the blood of Jesus, you understand your identity, you're filled with the Spirit, then you're ready to obey properly because it's going to flow out of an intimate relationship with Jesus and you're not going to be obeying in order to earn God's love because you already have God's love. And so we're going to see this fleshed out in this passage today. Here's the central truth. If you were to boil this, these verses down into one sentence, I believe it would be this. God will judge sin and deliver the righteous. Because he is holy, because he is righteous, he must judge sin. C.S. Lewis said, who would want a God who is indifferent to sin? Who would want a God who is indifferent to sin? Now, we love it when God brings judgment on those dirty, rotten sinners out there that do something to harm us. But then when it comes to roost in our life, then we're less comfortable, right? But, but, but God brings judgment on sinners or else he would cease to be holy. If God just said, oh, it's no big deal that this person committed murder and just try your best next time, we'll fine you $10, everybody would cry injustice if that was what the judge in a court today did. Because God is holy and righteous, he must judge sin. But because he is loving and merciful, he puts that judgment on his son Jesus so that we not receive it, but Christ receive it for us, and that's how it's all met together in the gospel of Christ. And that's what we're going to see today. The only way you and I are made righteous before God is through the work of Christ, not our own works. And is by receiving the gift that he offers, and that's why the gospel is such good news. So let's begin with the judgment of God. There are three judgments referred to in this passage. Angels, the flood, and Sodom and Gomorrah. He talks first of all about fallen angels in verse 4. He says that just as God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. Now because it says here, cast them into hell, we know that ultimately demons will not fully be cast into hell until the final judgment. So this could be a, a foretelling of that, or it could be the judging of those angels that committed sin by having sex, the fallen angels with the women in Genesis 6 prior to the flood that led to the birth of the giants or the Nephilim. Some say it was those angels that were judged in this way, therefore they could not do that act again. In either case, it is fallen angels. Angels that were at one time before the very presence and the glory of God, and they rebelled because they wanted the presence of God. They defied authority. They wanted what only God can have, and that is glory and authority and power and sovereignty. And because of that, they were removed from heaven. Now, it was Charles Spurgeon, who was called the Prince of Preachers, that says, isn't it interesting that angels who only knew the very presence of Almighty God could actually sin and rebel? What a lesson to us that if those beings could be that close to the glory and the holiness and the majesty of God and yet fall, are we not all prone to wonder? Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So we must be careful. We must abide constantly or else we like they could drift and fall away. But it's a sobering thing. In Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, it describes the fall of Lucifer. Revelation 12 says that they took a third of the angels with them, which are now demons. And so here we see judgment of God on fallen angels. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but there's actually a blessing to hell. Praise God for hell. You may find that a strange statement. But, but hell guarantees a place where one day all wickedness, sin, Satan, and evil will be 
secured and put and the door will be closed forever. Thus, protecting a place called heaven where God's people will be with him forever and it will be completely free from all of that. So praise God for hell. Now we, nor does God, desire anyone to go there. We, we're going to learn in a couple of weeks in 2 Peter 3 that the, that the only reason judgment hasn't fully come yet is God is patient, wishing all to come to repentance. He wants all to come. He makes that offer to all. But He will not force anyone to receive Christ. It is a decision that you and I must make. And so here we see the, the angels that rebelled being judged. Secondly, we see the flood. Verse 5. This is the universal flood that came upon the earth, and there is great scientific proof of this today through the fossil evidence. And by the way, if you don't believe that the universal flood actually occurred, then you are taking a view of history and the Bible that Jesus did not take. Because in Matthew 24, Jesus refers to the universal flood. He says, just as in the time of Noah and the flood and people are living their lives and thinking nothing's going to happen, and then boom, it happens and judgment comes in the same way. The Son of Man will return at a time when many don't expect. He'll come like a thief in the night. And so I call it biblical Jesus hermeneutics. We should take the same view of the Bible and interpreting the Bible as Jesus did. If Jesus believed that the flood literally occurred, then why would we think differently? If you don't believe the universal flood occurred, you think you're smarter than Jesus. What pride, what arrogance would a person have to think about a historical event different than the creator of the universe, Jesus Christ? So I would take Christ's view of things that occurred historically, and Jesus certainly believed in the universal flood. Here it is spoken of. And in Genesis 6, let's look at it for a minute because I want to challenge a little of your, take you deeper in sanctification today. Remember, as we behold the glory of God, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Part of sanctification is growing in your experience of the emotions of God. If God feels something, then we should feel it. The more we become like God, the more we become like Jesus, the more we grow in maturity as believers... We should not only seek to behave the way God does or Jesus does, we should seek to feel the way God feels. And sin grieves the heart of God. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man, man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart heart. Boy, isn't that a powerful phrase. Take time in your devotions and in your meditation to ask God to have you feel what he feels. The things that joy the heart of God, like a person getting saved. Two of our youth got saved this Wednesday night over in the chapel. Yeah, I love. Did that delight God? Yes. Angels rejoice in heaven over one sinner who repents. And so the things that joy his heart should joy our heart. At the same time, the things that burden his heart and grieve his heart should grieve our heart. And he grieved over their sin because why? He created us to know him and love him and be in relationship with him. And sin separates us from God and inhibits us from experiencing that relationship that we're created to experience. 
And so that phrase, he loves the sinner, hates the sin, it really is biblically true. He loves all people. He wants all people to come to know him, love him, and experience that relationship. But he hates the sin because of what sin does to inhibit that abiding, loving relationship that he created us to experience. The third area of judgment spoken of here is Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 6. Now, this is recorded in Genesis 19. You can read about it on your own. It was the sin of gross sexual immorality. It was the sin of homosexual practice. And I know that that is not popular to talk about today. I know that we live in a culture that is saying, you know, some are created this way and some that, and we should just all accept and, and all of that. But that's not what the Bible says, you guys. And so those that will challenge the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah and say it was the sin of not being hospitable, not welcoming them into his home. Well, let's look at how the book of Jude describes the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. So turn, please, to the book of Jude. It's right before Revelation. It's a one-chapter book. You can only refer to the verses. Jude, verse 7. Again, whenever the New Testament gives commentary about something in the Old Testament, you can be assured that it's accurate. Jude, verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, same way that homosexual sin is described in Romans 1, it's going from the natural to the unnatural serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, lest you think that we are just singling out this sin, since I know that homosexuality is a sensitive topic today, I, I want us to look at a passage that speaks of a number of sins that prevent a person, that can prevent a person from going to heaven. Homosexual sin is one, but there's others listed. So it's, it's important that we see this list as a whole, and that we see that there's hope for any sin to be forgiven by the blood of Jesus. So turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Boy, that's an interesting phrase. He knew then that it would be easy for people to be deceived. You, you, you are deceived when you think something's okay that's not. That's deception. Satan is one of the greatest tools of the enemy is to get you to think that something that is ungodly is okay. Because then you do it and you think nothing's wrong with it. Boy, has he done that today with a lot of these things that we're about to see in this list. Don't be deceived. How do you keep from being deceived? By living by the truth of God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit, understanding God's nature accurately. So be not deceived, neither the sexually immoral. Now that covers a broad range of any, basically that phrase, sexual immorality there in the Greek, refers to any sexual intercourse outside of a one-man, one-woman marital relationship. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. All of these sins, if not repented of, can keep one out of heaven. So the person who's quick to point out the sin of homosexuality may be the very person who is worshiping a sports team more than Jesus, and thus they're sinful, guilty of idolatry. So let's be careful 
that we don't quickly say, oh, those people, when there's a lot of other sins mentioned here, how about drunk? How about the person who will be quick to condemn the sin of homosexuality, but they're getting drunk on Friday night in downtown Athens? It's right here. Or thieves, or the greedy. Do you know that Christians spend more money on pet food than missions? I would call that idolatry, or I would call that greedy, or a lot of stuff. Then verse 11, here's where the hope comes. And this is where it's so awesome, the the balance of God's nature, law and grace. All law, no grace, no hope. All grace, no law, no standard. Law and grace. Luther talked about this. And so here's law. This is heavy. It's judgment. It's, this is sin. No questions asked. I don't care what the Supreme Court says. I don't care what the political things in our country say. It's what does God's Word say. Okay, so there's the law of God. Now you get convicted by the law. That's the purpose of the law. The, 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 the purpose of the law is not to get you to try harder to obey God and pat yourself on the back and say, God, you must accept me because I've been a good person. The purpose of the law is to convict us of sin so that we'll see our need for grace. That's what Timothy says. So now that we've been convicted, now we're ready for grace. <laughs> Verse 11, such were some of you, past tense. This is hopeful, you guys. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You get convicted of your sin that you might repent and fall at the mercy of God. And then He forgives you and cleanses you and heals you and changes you. That's law and grace meeting perfectly at the cross of Jesus. So this is the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Then we move now to the mercy of God. And so how beautiful that as God addresses this judgment upon the angels and judgment upon upon uh, the world through a flood and judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah interposed in here, woven into the fabric of this is the mercy of God. And we see three things mentioned, verse 5, verse 7, verse 9. He preserved Noah. This is to give us hope, you guys. In the midst of a sinful culture, there was this man, Noah. He was righteous and God spared his family. There was this man, right, this man Lot, and God spared his family. They survived the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Notice the repetition of the word righteous. So we're going to have to answer this question. How is one made righteous in the sight of a holy God? Only by the blood of Jesus. Not by your own goodness. Not by your own striving. Not by your own performance. Then verse 9, and this comes to roost for us, that he knows how to rescue the godly from trial. So let's begin with preserving Noah. Here's Noah in the midst of a sinful world. God's heart is grieved. He's going to destroy it with a flood. But he finds this man, Noah. Noah obeys God to build an ark. And you can imagine the ridicule he must have gone through and the time that he had to wait and wait and wait. But he obeyed God. And God spared him. God saved him. Then he talks about Lot. In the midst of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah and these gay people coming to Lot's house and begging to have sex with the male angels in his house. And then you have this interesting description of Lot in verses 7 and 8. And again, read Genesis 19 and see all the details. It describes Lot as being distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men. It describes him as being tormented in his righteous soul by what he saw and heard. 
And so as I challenge us all, me included, to grow in our sanctification today, and one aspect of sanctification to grow in is, is, is identifying with the emotions of God. And here was a man who identified with the emotions of God for Lot, seeing the sin around him day by day. It tormented his soul. He was burdened. It grieved him. And, and, and we should also, beloved, beloved, we should also grieve over the sin in our day. That now they say uh, one out of four women will be sexually abused. One out of six men will be sexually abused. That should grieve our hearts. Women being raped. Children being abused. Babies being killed in the womb. The pornography industry and all that it does to destroy lives. So many addicted to drugs and alcohol and all the damaging effects that brings upon the families and the children's and the children's children. The greed and the materialism that is so rampant in our country. The idolatry of sports and entertainment and how many Christians give more money and time and emotion to their sports team than they do to the Savior who gave his blood to save them. Rich recently posted on Facebook, I thought it was an amazing thought. He said, anybody who can spend $150 on a on a, on a on sports event and think nothing about it, yet say they can't afford to tithe. There's a problem. There's a problem. They need to look at their heart. The fact that we spend more on pets than missions. The 1040 window being ignored. The spiritual decline in churches. It should break our heart because it breaks the heart of God. so good and it's part of the journey yeah, i love it i love it when somebody hears something they gee that's right it's terrible one thing about the bible that i love it's honest it doesn't sugarcoat anything then if that's not bad enough he gets drunk and his book peter who made some pretty big mistakes but we would all say peter was a righteous man so take heart today the totality of your life is what God's going to look at. And it's not how you start, it's how you finish. Furthermore, yeah. Furthermore, we know that our righteousness is not based upon our behavior ultimately, but based upon what Jesus did for us. We receive that as a gift. It is imputed righteousness from God. And what declares us right with God is not our successes or our failures ultimately, but the blood of the Lord Jesus applied to our heart. And from that gift of righteousness, we want to live righteous as an expression of who we are. So I'm not excusing sin. I'm not saying it doesn't matter how you live. I'm not preaching greasy grace. Oh, we're forgiven by Jesus, we're righteous in Christ, therefore we can do all this kind of stuff that I just described, and it's okay because you're still righteous. That's not at all what I'm saying. Grace never gives permission to sin. Grace actually motivates holiness. But I think what we have here described is, is Lot's, the totality of his life. And I believe under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter is writing some things here that are not recorded in the Old Testament that maybe, just maybe, Lot fully repented of that stuff that I just mentioned, realized how stupid and crazy and out of God's will it was, and from that moment on, lived an incredibly abiding life in God.
the bottom line is there's hope for all. If, if you take nothing from this, take this. No matter what you have done, no matter what you are doing, no matter what sin you've committed or are committing, if you fully, completely repent, throw yourself at the mercy of God, cling to the blood of Jesus, there is forgiveness, there is healing, there is hope, there is reconciliation, there is redemption. That's how good the gospel is. So that leads us right into the final section, the gospel of Jesus. We talked earlier about the attributes of God's judgment and mercy. His holiness and His love. If I were to diagram the attributes of God, and I've done this actually, I would put an umbrella, and that the umbrella attribute would be sovereignty, all-powerful, all-sufficient, glory. That's all-encompassing. Under that umbrella would be holiness and love. Under holiness comes His judgment, His justice. Under love comes His mercy and His grace and His patience. And you know where the nature of God is most fully on display? At the cross of Jesus. At the gospel of Jesus. This is why whenever Jesus referred to His death in the gospel of John, He said, it is not yet time for the Son of Man to be glorified. How can a death... How... In a sermon a number of years ago, they've now moved to Atlanta. I said that justice and mercy kiss at the cross. I think it's a C.S. Lewis quote, but I'm not 100% sure. Justice and mercy kiss at the cross. She went home that day, and that was a seed planted in her spirit, and she went home and with watercolor painted this. It's one of my favorite pieces of artwork in this building. On the left side is the blue. It's the justice of God, the judgment of God. Notice a gift in that righteousness for your glory. Father, we thank you today for your holy word. We thank you today for your spirit. That's what that means. Oh, definitely. You know, it, this would explain some of what are called the imprecatory psalms, where David is praying judgment on wicked nations. Um, he prayed that because he wanted to see the judgment of God come in a proper way. Um, so yeah, I love that because it's, it's a man after God's own heart, not just a man after God's own mind. You know, I think a lot of times in America, because we're kind of intellectual and a lot of Christians grow in, in a man after or a woman after God's own mind and, and they're very studious and all that. And that's great. I mean, I, I believe in all that. Obviously I've got several theological degrees, but it's got to be more than, than, than a man after God's own mind. It's got to be a man after God's own heart. So yeah, I think that's that's a great verse to support that. After the heart of God. God, let me feel your heart. Feel your emotions. Enter into how you think about things. Help me love the things you love. Help me hate the things you hate. Very good. So, do fallen angels that are demons still have sex with people today? Do them today? No. See, that's what that, I, I think. I'm probably of the of the leaning here that this judgment was on those fallen angels that did do that and he did go ahead and cast those into hell so they couldn't repeat it because we know that other fallen angels that are what called demons that now afflict people and tempt us and all that you know uh obviously haven't been cast into hell yet 
they will be at the final judgment, but they're the prince of the power of the air now, and they bring temptation and all that. So I take the view that, that the ones that are described here are those that did that and that they can't do that anymore. Can people who are homosexuals be Christians at all? If a person who does any sin, if they're truly saved, they will be convicted. The Bible says that if you're without discipline, then you're an illegitimate child and not a true son. So one sign of a true believer is do, when they sin, do they get convicted? Do they experience the discipline of the Lord? Do they feel that it's wrong? So a person that would say, there's nothing wrong with this, I love Jesus, and I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm a practicing homosexual, and I don't think anything's wrong with that, I would probably feel like that's a pretty good sign they're not saved. I can't ultimately determine that, only God sees their heart. But based on biblical truth, that you will know them by their fruit, and that if you truly have the Holy Spirit, He'll convict you, and you'll, Hebrews 12, be under the discipline of the Lord if you continually do that. So I think, again, we, we, we tell a tree by its fruit. We never want to ultimately say, they're not saved. I think that's dangerous. But I think you can say, based upon what I'm hearing, just as the person who is committing adultery and doesn't think anything's wrong with that and isn't convicted about that, I would probably say, based on your lifestyle, based on what you're telling me, it tells me you may not be saved. You need to get born again so you get the Holy Spirit, and that's how you overcome this problem. I have two uh, texted in. Can you recite some verses about repentance? Yes. Uh, in the book of Acts, it talks about repentance leading to times of refreshment from the Lord. The book of Acts talks about Faith and repentance being necessary for salvation. I think it's Acts 20, 19 or 20, 21, somewhere in there, where it gives repentance and faith is what is the prescription for salvation. Repentance is one of the missing components of the gospel today. We have easy believism. Just pray this little prayer. God will give you a ticket to heaven, but you've not repented. Now, you don't repent. You don't turn from sin to save yourself, but but when you get saved, you are turning from sin to Jesus. And so you're inviting him to not just be your Savior, forgive you of your sins, but to be your Lord. And so that's why it will produce a change of life. You've got to give it time to see that. But if a person says they just prayed and invited Jesus in their heart, but there's never been a change of life, again, you can tell a tree by its fruit. And so that's why repentance is an important component of a true conversion. You, and the Lord word literally means a change of mind. Mm -hmm. It's a change of mind about sin. It's a change of mind about who's to be Lord of your life. And that change of mind leads to a change of behavior. Metanoia is the Greek word for repentance. What would you say is the unpardonable sin? It's rejecting Jesus. Right. So if you commit the unpardonable sin by rejecting Jesus for salvation, then you're not forgiven. So it's the only sin that's unforgivable because you can't be forgiven unless you come to Jesus for salvation. So, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to reject Jesus for salvation. Um, if the flood was universal, wouldn't it have killed all marine life? What, wouldn't it what? Have killed all marine life. 
because the salt water would mix with the fresh water and then it wouldn't be suitable. Rich, how do you answer that? If the flood was universal, did it, it did kill all marine life. And then God brought it back, right? Rich, Rich could probably answer this better than me. Wait for the mic. Because he's a more of an expert on that whole area from a scientific standpoint. Yeah, okay, just one thought. It says that all life that had uh, the breath of life in its nostrils hmm. was killed by the flood, which would certainly apply to the universal scope of the disaster on land. I would not understand that to apply to marine animals. Okay. You have like a lot of, a lot of uh, marine life has a capacity to, be bra to, to uh, survive in brackish water. And you'll find even like bull sharks as far north in the Mississippi River as St. Louis, Missouri. So there's some flexibility there. And also God's possibly his um, uh, supernatural intervention to help those animals survive. That's how I, obviously you can't bring animals on the ark, right? The purpose of the ark was to save land animals and humans. Couldn't bring fish on the ark. Right. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Good. So a great uh, website for these type of questions. Great question, by the way. Answers in Genesis. I think they do a great job. Would you agree, Rich, that's one of the best websites on questions like this? Answers in IPR, ICR, Institute of Creation Research? Good. Excellent. What do we do if someone is struggling with homosexuality and has a relationship with God but feels extremely unloved from the church and is having trouble navigating it? And that's unfortunately a very common scenario. This is why, you guys, we need to be a church of truth and grace. Not just truth, but truth and grace. Jesus said he came full of truth and grace. So we need to love people where they're at. We need to embrace not their lifestyle, not their behavior, but we need to love them as people. Jesus did this. Jesus never required somebody to change before he would love them. He loved them where they're at. That's why the sinners and tax collectors love being around him. They love being with Jesus because for the first time they felt accepted, not their behavior, and he was quick to point out their sinful behavior. The woman caught in adultery is a perfect example. He said, go and sin no more. He didn't say your adultery is okay, you love the guy, you know, I know you have feelings for each other, so we'll give you a pass. No, he said, go and sin no more, but he said, neither do I condemn you. And so there's the perfect model for this question is we... We don't condemn them as people. We love them. We try to, try to understand their journey. If you talk to a person who is struggling with same-sex attraction or is in the gay lifestyle, 99.9% .9 of the time there has been some severe trauma in their past. They have been either sexually abused or they had an absent father, this is for men, and a domineering mother. And so they, they grew to resent women and they grew to need the proper affection from a man because they didn't get it from their dad because he was absent. Thus, it leads them to inappropriate expressions of acceptance, love, and, and, um, and that sort of thing. And so, so important that we, we, we get below the surface, we understand the journey somebody's been through, the pain that has driven their behavior, not to excuse the sin, but to understand the person, love them where they're at, and then you've earned the right to speak into their life. And, and Jesus did this over and over. He, he loved people where they were at, and because of that, they knew that, man, he really cares about me, so I might better listen to what he says. 
and then they were able to better receive the truth. Instead of condemning the behavior to the point where we unnecessarily drive them away. Does that make sense? You with me? All right. Yes. Um, in the past, I've heard of pastors saying that the law goes away because Jesus came. So can you explain more of how the law and Jesus come together? Because I've got confusion in the past. So no, that's I've good. never heard you, I've never heard a pastor talk about both. So Jesus, and this will be the last one, just for the, for the sake of time. I know there's others, and please text those in. I'll be happy to address those if the worship team could come back up just because of time. But Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. What he meant by that was, and first of all, there's different kinds of laws in the Old Testament. You have the 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 the, the um the sacrificial law that earned that that was the like the the uh, the, the, uh, the uh, sacrificial system, sacrifice a lamb to be made righteous and forgiven by God. Then you have the moral law. The moral law has never been changed. Okay, it's never been eradicated. That'd be like the Ten Commandments or the laws about morality, like sexual conduct that we've seen. Okay, so when Jesus said, "I came not not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law," what he meant was the law ultimately was to convict you of sin to show you how far short you came to the perfection of God the law was never intended as I said earlier for a person to be able to obey it and say look how good I am God I qualify for your kingdom that was never the purpose of the law the purpose of the law was to reveal to us that we are sinful that we fall short of the holiness of God in order to drive us to the grace of God so the law the Bible says in Galatians it's a tutor it's a schoolmaster it is to instruct us and lead us to Jesus. So the schoolmaster or the tutor in the first century was the person who would take that child from the home and lead them to school and drop them off, and that's where they were then educated. And so the law is to convict us of sin, show us how far short we come to the righteousness of God, like when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, you heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. Well, I'm going to take it even deeper. You lust after a person in your heart. It's as if you commit adultery, and you're like, oh, my goodness. I just thought I was okay because I'd never I'd committed adultery. Now you've convicted me of my thought life. I am ruined. Well, that's the purpose. The purpose is to convict and ruin us in order to lead us to the cross of Jesus where we get grace, mercy, and forgiveness for that and are declared righteous by His gift, not our performance. Where's my worship team? <laughs> there they are. <laughs> oh, that's good. Whew. Well, it's been a heavy day. But I hope today, I really pray that from God's word that you see this amazing combination of, 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 of standard righteousness, holiness, grace, love, and mercy. And isn't it awesome, church? Isn't it awesome how it perfectly comes together in the cross of Jesus? Only in the gospel, only in the gospel is this judgment and wrath and the seriousness of sin, and yet the love and grace and mercy of God just coming together like this. And I just pray today that all of this makes you just, just love the gospel and love Jesus more than ever before. And as we sing this final song, man, this is just so full of incredible truth. It's in Christ alone. Christ alone. In Christ alone. Listen, if you did pray to receive Christ today or you're 
about to or you're going to this afternoon, go to our mobile app, click register, and there's a place for you to indicate that I prayed to receive Christ today or I want to get baptized. And if you're watching online, and I believe there's some today online that have, that have given your life to Christ, maybe the gospel today came forth in clarity like you've never seen it. And you said, I'm going to cast myself at the mercy of God. I'm going to receive that gift of righteousness. Let us know. Please let us know by going to the app under register so we can just follow up with you and help you begin to take those next steps of growth. Prayer team, if you would uh, please take your spots and if you need prayer for anything, feel free to go to one of those people on the prayer team. Let's stand together.